Good morning, y'all. Thanks for coming out to the uh, perhaps most timely and serious and important of the sessions you will hear at the uh, 7th Annual Texas Tribune Festival. And of course, by this I mean the, uh, the deadly serious topic of President Trump and his views on professional athletes. Which is, uh, <laughs> is that, hold, hold on. <laughs> My bad. I'm sorry. Trump and national security. Uh, Evan was a little unclear when we spoke. I just checked Twitter and I thought. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that this panel is sponsored by the LBJ School of Public Affairs right here at the University of Texas. Welcome. Thank you to Dean Evans, Dean Angela Evans, for that sponsorship. Uh, I'm duty bound to remind the audience that our sponsors, we love them, but they don't get to choose uh, what questions I ask or what answers our panelists offer. So with that caveat out of the way, um, let me tell you who I am. I'm your host and moderator, Professor Bobby Chesney from here at UT Austin. I am the uh, co-founder of Lawfare Blog, which is the nation's leading source for online uh, commentary from experts on national security law issues, and also co-host of the creatively named National Security Law Podcast, which, <laughs> which is basically car talk mashed up with crossfire in reaction to the weekly national security news, so do with that what you will. Um, we have one hour. It'll be divided into about 40 minutes of discussion amongst our panelists, and then 20 minutes of discussion with you. So as you're sitting there listening and reacting, either there, there are topics we're not gonna get to because of the limits of time, you can raise them. Follow-ups you may wanna raise. I will ask and remind you at the time when the microphones go out and I open the floor to you, please keep the comments brief, or the, actually let's keep them as questions, shall we? Questions brief and make sure enough of you get to uh, talk as possible. Uh, lastly, uh, please silence your phones, but don't necessarily put them away. We uh, would be thrilled if you would join the conversation online on Twitter using the hashtag TribFest17. And uh, so if you're staring at your phones, I will trust you're not checking your email. You're, you're just commenting and reacting to what we have said. Now, uh, let me introduce our fabulous panelists in, in no particular order. I'm going I'm to start with uh, Representative Joaquin Castro, representing... representing my hometown, San Antonio, in the 20th District. He's a Stanford grad who went on to Harvard Law, and then after a successful run in private practice, entered the Texas Ledge, where he had five terms, and now he's in Washington in Congress, serving on, among others, uh, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Representative Castro, great to have you here in Austin. Thank you. Dr. Kathleen Hicks, to my right. Senior Vice President for the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, where she also holds the Henry Kissinger Chair. She had been Principal Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Forces. Dr. Hicks, welcome to campus. Thank you very much. Over to my left on the edge, Representative Will Hurd from the 23rd District. At A&M, he was the student body president, which you all know is a tremendous accomplishment. He joined the CIA and served for many years overseas as a, a clandestine service officer. Uh, after that, served as a senior advisor as a cybersecurity firm, and now in Congress serving also on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Homeland Security Committee, and the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Uh, Representative Hurd, always nice to have you on campus. Thank you. 
And last but definitely not least, the one and only uh, Mr. Malcolm Nance, who as a young man had an amazing capacity for language and a desire to serve his country and realized uh, both of those talents and ambitions in serving our Navy, where he specialized in intelligence and cryptologic matters. And after his time in service has been continuing to serve from the private sector through a variety of uh, uh, training and other forms of service to our intelligence and military communities. And then emerging as a deeply influential uh, contributor to our national dialogue through his, his media appearances and his recent books um, in 2016, I think they were both 2016, a book on the Islamic State and the struggle against IS and a book on Russian hacking of the election. And uh, speaking of that book, if you stick around in the Texas Union building, which is just behind us here, after this panel, go into the uh, Trib Fest community hub. Mr. Nance will be there signing his book, and so I highly recommend that to you. So. Let, let's dive right in. And we, we have identified a series of topics that will not be comprehensive, but will touch on many of our most pressing challenges as a nation at this difficult time. And I want to begin, of course, with North Korea. North Korea's nuclear and missile programs are evolving rapidly despite our best efforts to disrupt them. Sanctions, both from our government system and from the UN system, have, have followed and have increasingly tightened, including over the past week or so, and most notably, threats, colorful threats, military threats, exchanging back and forth. It's a frightening time in many respects. One possibility is it's simply a bad hand that must be played as well as it can be played. Perhaps President Trump is playing it as well as it can be played, or perhaps it's a bad hand and it's being mishandled. Congressman Castro, I'll start with you, but then we'll, we'll get everyone involved. Uh, what is your, your uh, perspective on the North Korea situation? Uh, it's obviously the most volatile national security situation that we're dealing with right now. Um, I think I've given the administration and the president a lot of credit for going to the United Nations and marshalling the world to place the tightest restrictions, sanctions on North Korea that North Korea has ever dealt with. Uh, and so I believe that our best course for cutting short their nuclear program, if there is one, is to basically do everything that we can to bring them to the table to choke their economy as much as possible. Uh, we have you know, signaled to China that we expect their cooperation. Um, you know, but I also think the president needs to take the fight off of Twitter. Uh, right now, you see a lot of back and forth between what is a young dictator in his early 30s and the president of the United States in public statements that have gotten more and more heated. Uh, I think that's counterproductive. I don't think it's getting us anywhere. Um, you know, Folks have been on, on different sides of this issue. Some folks argue for a military strike, but realize at this point, if you're arguing for a military strike, you're arguing to strike a country that has nuclear weapons. Uh, the only thing that we're unsure about is how far they can fire those nuclear weapons. And so that makes this, this situation especially tricky. Um, I do think the best course of action is a diplomatic one. Uh, despite the failure you know, of the six-party six talks years ago, and the fact that for years our strategy with North Korea was not really diplomacy, it was isolation. Uh, and we've got to figure out a way to get them to the table. Very good. Dr. Hicks, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I definitely want to underscore the congressman's point about the, the game of nuclear chicken on Twitter. I, I don't think that's helpful for either party. The risk of miscalculation in terms of the impact it can have not just because of the nuclear weapons. North Korea is already quite dangerous, even if you put aside the nuclear weapons piece. 
is, is tremendous, and it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it for the manliness show that is going on between these two, <laughs> these two uh, gentlemen, shall we say. Um, so uh, that is not helpful. I think that the president uh, prides himself on unpredictability as a centerpiece of how he thinks of his foreign policy. It's how I think he thought of himself as a businessman in terms of gaining advantage. But when you look at foreign policy, unpredictability on this level is extremely destabilizing. Uh, could, could there be a small chance of success by, by doing a madman theory and being crazy? I suppose there could be, but the downside risks of it are tremendous for the American people, for our soldiers, sailor, airmen, and Marines that are uh, stationed in South Korea and the hundreds of thousands of Americans who live in South Korea. Mr. Nance, let me invite you to join on this topic. Sure. You know, um, I'm not a Korean expert, uh, but I am a war fighter, and I've been involved in every military operation since 1983. Uh, in every war that we fought. And I, I've been under sustained artillery bombardment. Uh, let me understand, make people understand here that this game of chicken that's being played in words, as the doctor said, has human consequences. It has real world consequences. And those of us in the intelligence community, like, like Mr. Representative Hurd and I, understand that when you say and do something, your opponent has an opportunity to respond. Right now, we're responding with trolling. And Donald Trump is trolling a country which has spent 64 years perfecting trolls, right? Perfecting their commentary. But this could quickly escalate out of, out of control. And the problem that we have now is that this year, and I, and I was on a panel with E.J. Dion uh, earlier this year, and I couldn't actually believe that people were discussing the viability of attacking North Korea potentially with atomic weapons or even conventional weapons, okay? If that were to happen, first off, we'd become a global pariah instantly, global pariah. Secondly, 14,000 tubes of artillery that have been buried into the ground for over six decades will rain high explosive, sarin nerve gas, VX nerve gas, mustard gas all over the demilitarized zone and the city of Seoul where 10 million people live and endangering over 40 million people instantly. And that's if we find out that the United States doesn't choose to use what I call the 35 minute solution, that's when the president decides to launch a Minuteman 1 missile. And in 35 minutes from go, it will impact in North Korea and decimate however many million people. These are options we shouldn't be discussing right now. You know what we should be discussing? Six months paid family leave for having a baby. <laughs> and my problem with, the, with as, as, again, as an intelligence warfighter in the media, it's being discussed as if it's possible. And the, 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 the use of nuclear weapons is off the table. Every president since, uh, since Truman has understood that these are not toys and that when we now have this situation where we need deterrence, because North Korea is a nuclear player, no matter how you slice it. And if we keep pushing them, they may have to make a demonstration of their power. And what I'm afraid of is something I predicted three months ago, that they would surface detonate an atomic bomb with video cameras running to prove to the world that they are a nuclear power and not to be messed with. And two days ago, the foreign minister of North Korea threatened that. So we're in a situation where 
warfighters like me, right, who are out, of, out on the front line, uh, their families, 25 million people in the immediate thousand mile area of North Korea, we are betting their lives on this dangerous tweeting rhetoric. And the president needs to ratchet it back and his three generals need to gain control of that telephone. There's a lot of points here, but I think first and foremost, I think everybody would agree that a diplomatic solution to this is the way to go. Nine months ago, nobody would have thought that Russia and China would have agreed with the United States at the, the Security Council at the United Nations. The fact that we've had sanctions on, on two separate occasions is a major diplomatic um, victory. The fact that this week China has directed its central bank to stop you know, to stop doing business with any Chinese entity that is working with the North Koreans. Significant um, diplomatic achievement in order to ultimately resolve this. Um, now, I've always said um, Twitter, tweets are not policy, um, but, but we are not, it, the, the rhetoric is not what's pushing Kim Jong-un to develop nuclear weapons, right? He has been on this, this um, path for a long time. Kim Jong-un is interested in one thing and one thing only, staying in power. And he believes that the only way he can stay in power is by doing what his father and his grandfather, the first leader, Kim Il-sung, could not do, and that's getting nuclear weapons. Um, Kim Jong-un also has a legitimacy issue. Um, he, his mother was not his father's wife. Let that sink in. It's like a monarchy. This is why he had to kill his uncle because he had more of a direct line to the first leader. This is why he used VX nerve agent in a public place to kill his half-brother in order to solidify his position. And what we, and when I say it's we, it's the royal we, it's the United States and all of our allies, we have to change Kim, Kim Jong-un's calculation that the pursuit of nuclear weapons will prevent him from staying in power. That's the only way we get him to stop doing that. It's hard to do. But we also have to be prepared, and one of the things I learned from my nine and a half years in the back alleys of places like India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan is be tough with tough guys and nice with nice guys. And we have to be prepared when there's another test to shoot it down. Uh, we have to be prepared to defend our allies. Um, when Kim Jong-un is shooting missiles over Japan, this changes the calculation within Japan to say, hey, there are other things we could be doing in order to take defensive measures against this global threat. Um, this is an opportunity for us to potentially do uh, military exercises with China. Because if something happens in North Korea, there's going to be three million refugees, North Korean refugees, on China's border. And the Chinese don't want to see that happen. So this could actually be an opportunity for us to have the Chinese realize that a U.S.-South Korea-Japan alliance is not as threatening to them as a destabilized um, North Korea. So this is, this is a, a, a difficult situation, but I think when you look at every individual member within the administration, from Secretary Mattis to H.R. McMaster's talking about, you know, this needs to be solved um, diplomatically, um, but we have to be prepared to defend, to defend our allies, and not just the, the millions of, of folks in Seoul, but we have hundreds of thousands of U.S. men and women um, there as well, too. China came up several times in the commentary on North Korea, so let's pivot over to the U.S.-Chinese relationship. Clearly, at the moment, the, the mutual 
not identical, but mutual interests in China are central to that relationship. But the relationship is much more than that. It's a, it's a deeply complex uh, web of interests, some complementary, some competitive. We have economic ties, but we have trade tensions. We have mutual security interests, but we have clear military and security tensions, uh, including both in the physical space and in cyberspace. Dr. Hicks, uh, let me ask you to comment on the president's handling of the relationship with China, which he has repeatedly elevated to the point where I would say you see the president talking about, our president talking about President Xi and their relationship more than I think any other uh, world leader. Uh, how is the president doing? Uh, well, first of all, I applaud the pun that was in your, I don't even know that you noticed it, on the pivot to China, as that has been the, uh, the basic approach of administrations under that name or others, you know, for, for multiple uh, past administrations, Democratic and Republic. Republican. Um, so there has been this emphasis on China. It's a recognition that China is the world's second largest economy. It's growing in military might for sure, and it has great economic potential, um, both as a market and as a and as a um, you know a, a, a trader with with much of the world. So there's no um, administration in the United States that could, if you will, ignore China and to treat China as a key to how you deal with the evolving world order is very important. So. To the extent that President Trump has done that, I think that's a good thing to take seriously the role that China can play. I think the administration is really struggling internally um, between those who certainly had been in the Steve Bannon camp, but there's still folks there now, um, who look at China primarily through this lens of a, if you will, a clash of civilizations we were talking about before, as sort of the great threat that needs to be um, stamped out through any means necessary. I don't believe war between the United States and China is inevitable. Some um, folks do. Uh, but we have to very carefully manage that relationship. And again, rationing up the rhetoric unnecessarily on the economic front is not helpful given the a strong role that China can play and a, a positive role that China can play in areas like North Korea, um, climate change, and beyond. On the security front, there is no question China is the United States' greatest pacing military challenge. There are some specific areas for which for instance, Russia is a more important challenge. But by and large, China is the pacing challenge for the United States. Their development of capabilities is growing to the point where they can um, certainly incredibly threaten to foreclose US or allied access to areas in and around China. That's an economic problem for us if they ever choose to do it. And it's certainly a military problem for us in terms of protecting our allies and defending our interests. So we don't want them to ever want to do that. We both want to develop our own capabilities to deter that to be able to fight credibly through it, but we want to work with the Chinese to make sure that those security tensions that are very real don't um, overextend beyond the larger nation-to-nation uh, -nation and economic uh, goals that we share. Mr. Nance, can I ask you to weigh in on the, the China policy that we've seen on display this first part of the term? Well, the only thing that I would really want to comment on is the, the is how the United States, since January, has decided that we are just going to cede all former U.S. power that we had, all leverage that we've had, within, whether it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership or trade agreements with China. We've just decided that we will just give it to them in the guise of protecting American interests, making America great, doing America first. By withdrawing ourselves from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we have decided China will be the principal economic player for every nation in the Pacific Rim, and that the United States will go and try to do one-on-one -on -one trade agreements with all of these nations. 
I mean, it was bad enough that we turned over our manufacturing to China over the last two decades. But now, by giving them this power over us, this is not good business. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense that the United States would yield its, its, its last bit of leverage, which was the, the, the bulk of economic, U.S. manufacturing, U.S. foodstuffs, and the ability to sell lower and cheaper on the market than China itself, that we would give that up. I just don't understand that at all. Congressman Hurd. Well, I, I look at this relationship at we're frenemies. Right? The, the U.S. And, and China, and it's it's such a broad and deep relationship that you can't look at, you know, you can't, one topic doesn't define the entire relationship, so trying to look at um, the broader bilateral relationship through one individual lens, you, you can't do it. Um, I would say that it seems, and, and I haven't done the numbers, I feel like uh, President Trump and the, and the Chinese president have talked more in these not last nine months than um, two, two other, uh, at any other point in time. I wouldn't be surprised if they're text buddies, you know. Um, and, and so, so it, it's, it's my point earlier about the fact that China has been with us at the UN Security Council, that China has taken steps um, in their own economy to deal with, with North Korea. These are a sign of the importance of that relationship. But we have broader economic troubles with China. Um, economic espionage by the Chinese here in the United States is significant. That needs to stop. Um, what's the, I always forget the name, the Chinese, the, the Chinese version of Amazon? Oh, Alibaba. Al Alibaba. Oh, yes. So Alibaba in the United States is treated as an American company. But Amazon in China is not treated as a Chinese company. Right? This, is, this is ultimately a problem. And when you look at how China has doing uh, investments in um, emerging technology in the United States to, in order to get a, a toehold in important industries, that is a significant problem. So, so you know, the, the relationship is strong enough to deal with these individual problems while working together on major issues like North Korea. And I think we're going to see this play out in the NAFTA renegotiations, the, the third round up in Ottawa, I guess next week or week after next, when we talk about rules of origin. Um, because the Chinese are taking advantage of NAFTA to, especially in the automotive um, industry. And guess who that's hurting? That's hurting Mexico and that's hurting the United States. And so being able to tighten that um, is a, a way we should be looking at how to be, how to be strong um, against China. But uh, as Dr. Hicks says, I, I don't think a, a physical confrontation between the U.S. and, and China is, is ever going to happen. Um, but it's a complicated relationship that we have to make sure we're looking at every individual aspect of it. Congressman Castro. Well, the Trump administration in many ways has been a godsend for Xi Jinping. It really has allowed both Xi Jinping personally and China to ascend on the world stage and be seen as more of a leader among nations. And particularly early in his presidency, I realize it's only been nine months, but it seems like four years, right? <laughs> um, but early on, when he was starting to alienate some of our longstanding allies, take the case of Mexico, for example. Um, Mexico is one of the United States' largest trading partners. And so I said then, and I still believe, that when you start to alienate some of your your longstanding allies, they can go do their trade with other countries. They don't have to get all the goods they get from the United States uh, from us. They can go to China, they can go to Brazil or somewhere else. So I still believe that a longer term threat 
to alienating countries with whom we do a great deal of trade that we have longstanding ties with is that you're essentially creating an opening. In the case of Mexico, you're creating, I think, an opening in Latin America for China. And, uh, you know, I, again, several months ago, I said that if the United States, through the Trump administration, takes away aid from Mexico, then I'm sure that Xi Jinping and China will be glad to give Mexico whatever we take away. And just as China has gone into African nations, for example, and done many development projects, uh, they have started to and will continue to go into Latin America and do the same thing. And, you know, Xi Jinping was at Davos earlier in the year uh, and gave a speech and talked about climate change. So you see him also trying to take on the mantle of moral leadership and future-oriented leadership to really be seen as, have China be seen as the leader among nations of the world, which the United States has occupied, you know, for generations now. But, but China just, is never going to be a, a leader on on climate change. They're increasing. They're increasing their their um, their carbon emissions um, over the next ten years. They're not decreasing that. And so I think we have to. We we have to. I, I agree. When there is a void, a void will be filled, and and we cannot let that void be filled by 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 other. But I think the basic be, yes. test is that you have the president of the United States saying, "I want out of the Paris Climate Agreement." Mm -hmm. And the president of China saying, I'm going to stay in. That's a very stark contrast that the world, I think, recognizes. I don't think China cares at all about whether they're going to be the actual leader of climate change. They're going to make, they're going to make machinations to that respect. I think they're more interested in dominating the global solar sales industry, dominating the global wind power industry. They own it. Ten years ago, China was not in the market of solar power. The United States was. I live in upstate New York. We have a small place called Sundog Solar, which was one of the only manufacturers in, in, in the Northeast United States. They're making whiskey now. China has flooded the entirety of this country with cheap solar panels, and that's what they want to dominate. Well, I think we got around to what I was going to say anyway, but I'll just <laughs> say it this way. I do think it's a very complicated relationship. We should not see China behind every pillar. Uh, where we are not. But it's no doubt that the United States is one of its strongest asymmetric advantages is its alliance network, and we are putting that alliance network at risk every day in terms of the way this administration, really just the president, um, speaks about and tweets about allies and partners and how he treats them. And we should expect, just the, as the congressman said, that they have agency, they have opportunities, they have their own interests. They like us, but they, you know they're not going to um, stick with us necessarily through thick and thin if they have alternatives. And we talk a lot, and we're going to talk about Russia. We talk a lot about Russia's playbook, which is very good playbook. The Chinese have their own playbook, and they buy up infrastructure, and they pay off um, uh, politicians, and they are investing in Southeast Asia. And, mm -hmm. and if you talk to Australians or Japanese, they are very worried about the degree to which the U.S. is committed to the region and the degree to which the Chinese can, if you will, buy their way into the good graces of the rest of Asia. I'll, before we switch over to Russia, which is where I want to go next, I'll just remind the audience, uh, because it's not often talked about in our media, the Chinese are about to have their periodic Communist Party conference. This is a big deal event in China. It is the moment when President Xi is going to further consolidate his power. Um, there are little signs and tells, uh, titles he might assert for himself if the consolidation is going well enough. 
And once that is accomplished, and my sense from the experts like UT's own Dr. Josh Eisenman is that he probably will accomplish this transition, he's going to have a much freer and stronger uh, hand to play going into 2018, so be watching that space. Now, Dr. Hicks, you mentioned a moment ago the, the, the China playbook and gave a good overview of the, the particular mix of uh, advantages and disadvantages they have and how they smartly play against them. When we think about the Russians, it's exactly like that. The Russian playbook, they've, they've got a problematic economy, but they have certain things they do well, and Vladimir Putin has exploited those comparative strengths. We see this in a variety of ways. We've seen it with the growing influence of Russia over its near neighbors. We've seen it with the literal conquest of territory on its periphery, taking the Crimea from the Ukrainians. And we see it, of course, in the combination of information operations, hacking, the leveraging of social media, the whole blend of things that affects many countries' internal political processes, but especially and remarkably our own in 2016. Um, Dr. Nance, you've, you've literally written a book about this. Uh, <laughs> how well is the administration responding to this uh, strong and aggressive poker playing by Vladimir Putin? Well, I think the Obama administration is making a great response. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, let's, let's talk about both Obama and Trump responses. How, how well has America responded over America's, the past couple of years? Well, in the last couple of years, poorly. Uh, and th there has been no response. All of America's, how can I put it, the strategy for confronting Russia, so to speak, today, is merely coming down to uh, uh, words and rhetoric that Russia just discounts completely. They do not care what we're doing. Vladimir Putin has a strategy for where he wants to bring the Russian Federation in the future. And that requires, and I, I really believe this, you know, when I did my intelligence analysis, that is a book, uh, it became very clear that this is a man who was raised in the Soviet era. He is, a, he is a former KGB officer. And what he has managed to do was transition Russia away from the communist ideology, but keeping these goals that the, Russians, uh, that the Soviet state had to discount American democracy uh, and to lessen America's role in the world. And he, you know, when he was a young KGB officer, he was stealing computers from the West and bringing them to the East and, bringing, and integrating them into the KGB. That was what his job was, a very low-level human intelligence officer, but he understood information power. And... Harnessing that propaganda and political warfare strength of the Soviet Union, transitioning that to a nation with now billions of dollars that they can apply to that, he is just implementing an ideology in his head that he thinks will lessen and degrade the United States and allow the Russian Federation to ascend to the number two superpower in the world as opposed to China's strength in, uh, in economic power. But that requires the United States to be knocked off that box. And I think he's done it. And I, you know, I, I think he has knocked us off that box. <clears throat> the hacking operation uh, wasn't just to create chaos. It would have created chaos if Hillary Clinton had won and become president, but I think she would have had a much stronger uh, response to it. She herself said last year she would have considered this type of operation equal to a terrorist attack on the United States. Donald Trump doesn't believe in it at all no matter what anyone tells him, no matter what the U.S. intelligence community tells him, these operations continue. And every day, you can't turn your phone off for five minutes without learning some new travesty that the, that the Russian intelligence community, 
which obviously created a very deep integrated in, uh, operation to influence the United States election. But if you look back on it and peel it back, this is just old school KGB operations with lots of money. They don't have to buy a trade union or a printing press anymore and hand out leaflets on the street. They can pretend to be American citizens by the millions like they did last year. Uh, I had an operation carried out against myself where they pretended that they were an American citizen from Denver and said at a conference two months ago they were going to assassinate me on stage and then posted it amongst the alt-right in Southern California. There wasn't going to be an assassination. They wanted people to come to the conference to see a spectacle. And we tracked it back to St. Petersburg in Russia. And this is how they are weaponizing America's democracy in our own information sphere. The, our battle space belongs to them. Congressman Hurd. So in, in nine and a half years as an undercover officer, I chased Russian intelligence officers all over the world. And, and I learned something real simple, simple. The Russians are not our allies, they are our adversary. Mm -hmm. Period, end of story. Um, Vladimir Putin is trying to destabilize our democratic institutions because he can't stop us militarily, he can't stop us economically. That is why he's trying to, to erode trust in NATO, erode trust in the EU, and drive a wedge, whether real or perceived, between the White House, the intelligence community, and the American people. And that, is, that was the purpose. Uh, I always say when, um, when the GRU, uh, the Russian military in, in intelligence organization, brief Grizzly Step, Grizzly Step is what the, the intelligence community refers to, the Russian, uh, Russian attempts to manipulate our election. When they brief that um, in their GRU 101 class, it's going to go down as one of the greatest covert action campaigns in the history of Mother Russia it because it, it, it created that wedge. Um, now, what are we doing about it? We do not have a counter-covert influence strategy. Um, disinformation is a part of covert action. And in the United States, the CIA is responsible for covert action. But because of the National Security Act of 1947, the CIA can't do things in the United States of America. So who should be responsible for solving this problem? And Secretary Tillerson is not going to be able to do it with his Twitter feed alone. Right? And so we have to have public sector, private sector working together. I, I was recently in Ukraine. And, and what can we do right now? What we can do right now is arm the Ukrainians. The Russians invaded Ukraine, period, end of story. But they created this narrative over the last two years that it's a separatist movement. It is not a separatist movement. It is 920 Russian tanks in eastern Ukraine. There are more Russian military in eastern Ukraine than there are Ukrainians. And, and they're trying to say now we should have UN peacekeepers come in to solve this conflict. Real simple solution is conflict, just leave. You're the ones that invaded a, a sovereign country. And, and, and in a bipartisan way, uh, we, we know there's not a lot of bipartisan things that happen in Washington, D.C., but mo, 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 three years in a row, Congress, Senate, and the House have suggested and, and passed legislation to say that the U.S. should be ar arming our allies in Ukraine because Vladimir Putin does not care. He just sold weapons to Turkey. Turkey is a NATO country, and who would give weapons to an adversary if he didn't think they were going to use it against you, right? And so we have to change the calculation. We have to show that we're willing to push back, and we also have to, to make sure that our allies um, know that we have their back. And we can do this today. 
because the president has the authority to, to arm our friends. The State Department has suggested they do it. The Secretary of Defense has suggested President Trump make this decision. And I hope President Trump changes U.S. policy and ultimately arms our friends in Ukraine. Congressman Castro. Yeah, I, I think part of what makes the relationship with Russia so tough, as it, as it is with China, um, is that Russia has a seat on the National Security Council, right? Um, UN. The UN, I'm sorry, the UN Security Council. And, yeah, I know. They, uh, although... The, hash, the hashtag is TripFest17. Yeah. <laughs> Am I wrong? wrong. <laughs> At least for two so months. Because of their position, because of their position uh, at the United Nations, whenever the United States is trying to help keep uh, peace in the world in different places, take the example of getting chemical weapons out of Syria, for example, in 2013, mm -hmm. uh, when it was clear that the United States Congress uh, didn't want our military to go in, the UK didn't want to go in, uh, who was cooperative and helpful in that instance? Russia, right? Uh, when you talk about uh, trying to sanction North Korea, uh, they're in a position to veto things like that when we're trying to take action against North Korea. Uh, with the Iran deal, the same thing. Uh, Russia is very instrumental in helping you know, with a solution there. So that's what also gives them a lot of leverage in their relationship with the United States and in the world. Now, to the point about basically their disinformation and their propaganda, their methods were tailor-made for a social media era that is now in full bloom, right? 30 years ago in the 1980s, it would have been very hard for them to achieve this. In fact, they never achieved it during the Cold War because our media and how we receive information was much more filtered. In other words, they weren't going to be able to, to, to you know, do all these fake ads on CBS and NBC and, and ABC when people were getting their information from basically just a handful of sources. Now, last year, the plurality of folks, or, or a majority of folks, got plurality of their information from Facebook, rather than one of the networks or you know, CNN or MSNBC or whoever, they got their information from reading other friends' feeds on Facebook. Well, the thing about Facebook and other social media is that it is relatively unfiltered. Uh, now, it looks like that's going to change, hopefully, as we cooperate more with Twitter and Facebook and other platforms to try to root out Twitter bots, for example, that are automated to repeat messages, fake Facebook accounts that were apparently recruiting people to go to candidate Trump's rallies in Florida. But their, their methods and the way they do things is basically a perfect fit for a media uh, scene era that, is, that has fairly been unfiltered. And if you think about it, President Obama in the years that we just lived through was the first president that existed in a, an era where social media is in full bloom. And so when I see Facebook talking about coming to the intelligence committees in the House and the Senate, um, you know, what I think is that for them, this was really a problem of first impression, right? This was the first time with their technology that really has only been, you know, really kind of you know, at its zenith for a few years, where they've had a full-on assault by a foreign government trying to influence a United States presidential election. And so it's gonna be very consequential and interesting to watch how this challenge is resolved. It's gonna take public and private cooperation, as Will mentioned, uh, both the private sector and, and the government working together, but it is incredibly consequential. 
One more thing that I would mention, because I was very surprised to hear this, to learn of this, um, when, when all this broke and when I came out on the Intelligence Committee, is that there is not a single federal law, and as far as I know, there's not a state law, but I could be wrong about that part, no single federal law that requires even a basic or minimum level of cybersecurity protection for our voting systems. So states and counties that administer elections are not required to have any kind of cybersecurity protections for our voting machines. And that's part of the reason that in Virginia, for example, they're now trying to get rid of those touchscreen voting machines. And I assume go back to paper ballots. Uh, I know another state was pursuing the same thing. A few countries have done the same thing. That is a challenge that the United States Congress and the American people have to take on because the Russians will come back in 2020 or 2024, and it could be somebody else, it could be China that comes back, or a non-state actor that works to influence our elections. Let me segue from the reference to cybersecurity because in any conversation about our national security in 2017, it's also a conversation about cybersecurity. A few words for us. OPM, Sony, Target, Anthem, Home Depot. Equifax. Indeed. It just goes on and on. Congressman Heard, you have uh, business experience in this field and also legislative experience. Um, it, at this point, it's, we all recognize there is a clear national problem that's multidimensional. It's, mm -hmm. it's military, it's political, it's social now, but it's also economic, as you mentioned earlier. What more could we be doing by way of solutions? So let's start at the 80,000 foot view. What is a digital act of war? Nobody knows, right? And we haven't, we haven't had these conversations. There are different pockets that do. Now let's start with what the UN considers an act of war. They say if you manipulate or do something to destroy a country's utility grid, that's an act of war. But when the Russians did it to the Ukrainians a couple of years ago, there was no response. Right? And so, so establishing what we consider digital act of war and then what is the response to that um, is important. And sometimes the response is not going to be a digital response to a digital act. Um, when the Russians, you know, two summers ago when the Russians were, in, were trying to influence our election, I'd been saying kick the Russian ambassador out of the country. Um, we can take non-digital responses. And some response we're going to say, hey, if you do this, we're not going to tell you what you're going to do, what we're going to do, um, but we're going to do something. And, but we have to have those conversations within a, the, the framework of, of the government. If you look at the, the, the federal government, the .gov space, we are not following some basic principles of good digital hygiene in protecting people's information, right? And OPM is the perfect e example of that. And so there was, there was little things, um, you know, uh, I've been in probably 35 parades in my two and a half years in Congress, and nobody's ever held up a sign that said IT procurement. I don't know if you've ever seen one Joaquin <laughs> at a parade. Um, but the way we purchase IT goods and services is a problem. Right? And we were able to, uh, there was a bipartisan piece of, of legislation um, that finally got, uh, passed the House, got passed through the Senate, to change the way we purchase um, um, IT goods and services in the federal government, to make sure we're introducing the latest technology to defend our digital infrastructure within the government space. And, and two, what we need to do is we need to make sure that the, the federal government is sharing information with the private sector. Uh, Keith Alexander, the former head of the NSA, always mm -hmm. says, if the government thinks it can protect digital infrastructure alone and the private sector can defi the, defend digital infrastructure alone, it's the equivalent of the French thinking the Maginot Line is going to defend them from the Germans. 
Right? And so we have to improve that level of cooperation. And I think the way we do it is, the private sector has a pretty good idea, like, and any bank has a good idea where the Russians are going to try to you know, attack them again. Let's turn those assumptions into collection requirements. Get that into the federal government to guys that do what I used to do. Go collect that information and then get it back in the hands of the private sector so they can defend against these nation state hackers like the Russians, the Iranians, North Koreans, and the Chinese. So, so these are, there, there is so much more that we should be doing and it also starts with elected officials recognizing the threat. And like Joaquin said, when it comes to our voting systems, um, I was at the premier hacking conference um, you know, called Black Hat. They had uh, 26 machines. Nobody had ever seen the machines before. Put them all in the room, told everybody, hey guys, come down, come hack these machines. And within like seven hours, every single one of them was hacked. Right. Now, when you have physical access to something, it's a lot easier, but still, the fact that it could happen in such a short period of time, and, and we have to begin uh, to, to start working together on this. And, and this is one of the truly bipartisan issues in Washington, D.C. It, it was under the Obama administration, and it's continued to be, be so under the Trump administration. Mr. Nance? I, I think the single most important factor, I mean, we can pass all the legislation we want, but we're having a serious, serious problem right now with validating information as it comes into the information battle space, as it comes onto the web. Um, you just have no idea what you're reading, whether it's true or not. And this has been weaponized by a nation state. It has been amplified by a political party in the United States. And we have a president of the United States who flat out validates every point that would defeat it, right? By calling the Russian hacking a hoax, a hoax. A president of the United States actually saying that the, the, the considered opinion of the entirety of the US intelligence community is fake, right? That's straight from Infowars, you know, and, or Breitbart, organizations that have very sketchy relationships with the truth. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. And the only hope for that is sunlight, is transparency. And what we're seeing now with this investigation isn't a matter of determining whether the President of the United States or his staff worked with the Russians. That will come out in the legal investigation. But the, pop, the public is just starting to find out that their perception of reality can be, can be bent. It can be influenced in such a way that they will believe that black is white and up is down. And we saw that this year, that it, you know, if anyone out there at any time ever believed that Hillary Clinton you know, um, was absolutely corrupt on the basis of the word emails, okay, well, she didn't have the greatest cybersecurity practices, but in fact, she did. That's that, that little, uh, you know, the, the, um, the hard drive that she had to destroy. She destroyed in accordance with U.S. Department of Defense and State Department, and, and I'm sorry, and National Security Agency policies. You run it through BitBurner, which, is, which cleans it, and then you smash the hard drive with a hammer so that none of the plates are running. That was turned into evil. I have been ordered to do that throughout my whole career. You have, I'm sure, done emergency destruct or destruct, but that was how information was turned into a weapon. And I'm, I'm afraid we might not be able to turn it back. So we can, again, we, you can't legislate this out of existence. 
You know, we have a saying in, in, in the intelligence community, common sense is the least used intelligence analysis tool. <laughs> <laughs> and we really need to get back to applying that. And we have organizations like Hamilton 68 and Clint Watts that are now trying to create, you know, this true facts food label that will go on determining whether a website is primarily a propaganda organ or whether they just lie or whether aliens really do control people but living in human skin. And this is what we're up against. And this, this, this how can I put it? Trying to regain the meaning of ground truth as we in the intelligence community know it. I see it, it's empirical, I count it, I can determine its behaviors on the basis of its actions and what they're going to do next. That is gone in this last year. That's what we need to work on the most. In a moment, we'll be inviting you to come up for questions, but let's finish off this topic. Dr. Hicks, uh, sure. you know, one dimension of the cybersecurity challenge is the personnel and staffing and competing with the private sector for DOD, NSA talent, cybercom talent. In general, what's your reaction to this? Oh, you're driving me down in a very narrow lane. But you All don't right, have to stay I'll, that I'll, lane. I'll, you can I'll, talk about I'll start money. there and then go back out. Um, well, I'm actually going to start out and then go in. How's Good. that? So um, I, I agree with Malcolm that the you know the information environment in which we live now it, that's not going to it's not fundamentally going to change. It's an information revolution just like the industrial revolution. Um, people aren't going to give up their smartphones They'll, or, or whatever comes after that. The question is how do we think about our national security in that environment. And that is where we are so woefully behind. I mentioned before that um, allies and alliance systems for us are an asymmetric advantage. Every good, smart nation state or actor in the international system is looking for its asymmetric advantage. Should it surprise us that countries look to weaponize, and in particular Russia most spectacularly look to weaponize um, information? Uh, we should expect and anticipate that as we evolve and improve societally and have these innovations, people are going to look for ways to weaponize it. That comes in the case of drones and other ty mm -hmm. types of uh, technologies. Well, AI is, of course, the next thing. So what I would say there is as a federal government, as a national security community, we are ill-equipped today to deal with the, that next set of threats that are upon us. We still think in you know, a National Security Act of 1947 ways of big state-to-state -state diplomacy, big uh, defense, you know, state-to-state uh, -state abroad, big economic treasury areas. And in fact, what adversaries are finding is that they increasingly can come below the threshold because either the thresholds haven't been defined effectively mm -hmm. or because we, we don't want to act, because we, we haven't galvanized our stuff. And we're very bad at these bite-by-bite -bite approaches, whether it's China or Russia or Iran. It's happening all over the world. Mm. So I think we face this challenge of how do we equip ourselves for the middle of the 21st century at this point in terms of our national security toolkit. One area where I think we have actually done fairly well is in the personnel side. There are still Americans deeply committed to serving their country. That is what ultimately draws people into working, whether it's in uh, the military itself or working, for instance, for the National Security Agency in, on the civilian side. And if you talk to the leaderships of those communities in the cyber realm, that is what they will tell you. The people who are being attracted, yes, they can make a lot more money elsewhere, and we're not going to change that, although we can make it better. Uh, but, but what they can't do anywhere else, we hope, is the type of work that they are doing on behalf of the US government to protect it, um, and the types of, for instance, offensive cyber activity that they can learn and they can do with that sense of national purpose. We have to continue to validate that and value that. 
Congressman Castro. Uh, no, I mean, I would, I think, you know, I agree. Um, and when we talk about uh, going forward in the cyber age, it, this really is kind of a brave new world for all of us. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, social media has only been in full bloom for about a decade. And it's just now, we don't know if we've hit the zenith, right? It may continue where, well, actually with, with, with virtual reality, um, artificial intelligence, we know that we're just gonna keep moving further into this world. And so how do you keep off the threats of other nations and non-state actors um, as we've been essentially barely able as Americans to keep up with technology? Uh, but it has provided a platform, a way for Russia and potentially other countries to hone their methods uh, and exploit this newness and the fact that we haven't come up with all the definitions that we need to, uh, that we haven't updated old laws that need to be updated, uh, that we haven't passed legislation uh, on cybersecurity protection for our voting machines, uh, and that you can't, uh, you know, as Malcolm mentioned, you can't, in the end, legislate what people think or how they perceive things. Uh, remember that we know Russia essentially put things into the, the social media bloodstream through Facebook, but after that, the message was amplified in politics the way it's always amplified by other Americans who shared the memes and passed on the invitations to events um, and so forth. And so it becomes very difficult to pass legislation to deal with that. Could I, can I add an yes, alibi please. before I know we sure. want to get to, to uh, touch on something that Joaquin and Dr. Harris said? Um, only 5% of high schools through the United States have computer science class. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's terrible. We don't teach how the internet actually works. We don't teach how an issue gets propagated um, and, and leveraged through social media to talk about understanding sources and things. We teach internal combustion engine in science class, right? But why aren't we teaching how, how, how the internet works? In Texas alone, um, there were 42,000, two years ago there was 42,000 jobs that went, that had required some kind of computer science need um, that went unfilled. But Texas only produced 2,100 computer scientists. And even worse, only 5,000 kids took the AP computer science class. That's the class we get college credit for. And of those 5,000 kids, only 900 were Latinos or Latinas and only 120 African Americans. Those are terrible numbers. And we have to make sure that more of our population becomes computer literate. And coding is going to be required as you know, in any job that you're going to get in, into the future because the technological change we're going to see in the next 20 years is going to make the last 20 years look insignificant. And some of these, comp these topics we're having here now are going to look like pillow fights compared to some of the big issues that we're going to have to deal with in the future. So we have to make sure that we're educating our kids and our grand grandkids in these concepts and theories. Strongly agree. We don't have a ton of time left, unfortunately, but we have some time. So I'll encourage the audience to come forward and we'll, we'll give the first question to the gentleman here who is quickest to the spot. And I please keep the questions as short as possible and we will keep our responses uh, brief as well. Go ahead, sir. Yes, no. Good morning and uh, thank yes. you all for your time. Uh, my name is David Reyes. I, uh, I'm a U.S. veteran. I served in the military as an engineer for six years. Uh, and I'm, you know, national security is of deep interest to me, especially uh, one of the topics that I was hoping that was covered was immigration. And with the recent news on DACA and the constraint timeline, and I think wanted to know, uh, specific con Congressman Hurd, I wanted to ask you, uh, what were you, like, what is your opinion on this? And uh, can you, is, a, is, a, is there a possibility that you would 
sponsor a bill to yeah, accelerate it's, it's, the DACA. It's, this is real simple. There's 800,000 young men and women that have only known America as their home. This is a simple issue to solve, yeah. right? Let's make sure they have legal status to stay here. And, and guess what? Now it's up to Congress uh, to put our, our money where our mouth is and actually get something done um, so that those 800,000 folks are able to continue to contribute to our economy, to our history, and to our culture. Thank you. Uh, yes, I had a question for you, Representative uh, Castro. I just wanted to ask, obviously, Russia is potentially a dangerous situation with the hacking. And does creating a standoff with Russia over cyber attacking have any potential uh, to reignite Cold War tensions? And how do you hold Russia accountable uh, while still not escalating tensions to an unhealthy level? That's a great question. Um, we certainly, certainly nobody wants another Cold War, right? Uh, we spent many years after the fall of the Soviet Union trying to help bring Russia along into the fold of the nations of the world, doing trade with Western Europe, uh, you know, trying to become democratized. And then as Vladimir Putin really ascended in power and took more control of the country, the country seemed to fall away into this autocratic, uh, leadership, basically, uh, and that's where we are now, is you've got a strong autocratic leader over there who essentially wants to expand his empire, and he's going about doing that. Uh, I agree with uh, the different sanctions that have been placed on Russia, for example, and, and our allies who have helped us with that. I think, you know, I think that we were also slow to respond on all these uh, election violations last year. I think that that the administration last year should have put the word out, basically. I understand why they didn't. I understand that there was a risk that it looked like they were advantaging the Democratic candidate. Uh, and of course, Monday morning quarterbacking is always easier than being in the middle of it, right? But um, all said, I think it would have been better to speak out back then and let the United States and Americans know about the threat that Russia poses. We've truly entered the lightning round. A quick yeah. Hi. Uh, I spent six years as a cyber intelligence analyst in the Air Force, and I'm now going into IP and cyber law. And I've long thought that, um, that there needed to be sort of an equivalent of a 9-11 Pearl Harbor digital cyber attack in order for us to get serious and galvanized. Um, I, I, I now think that it was necessary, but not necessarily sufficient uh, for that to happen. So my question is, what do you think would be a sufficient cause to galvanize us to actually make the serious investments needed? Uh, we're talking billions and billions of dollars to shore up our cyber defenses. What, 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 do you, what does that look like? Dr. Hicks. Oh, I can spin out scenarios all day long, and none of them are good. I mean, obviously, a severe attack on our banking system, I think, would be sufficient. Um, but again, I could think of many, many such, um, such catalysts. I think that one of the hard things when you work in U.S. national security is, 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 as a democracy, we are very unpredictable. And what will get the public really behind the politicians to push in a particular area at a given time is not necessarily something we can pick up in advance. Um, uh, so I think the Japanese learned that, for instance, after Pearl Harbor. So hopefully it won't take a major catastrophic event like 9-11, like Pearl Harbor, to create that kind of energy. But uh, it sometimes, I hate to say it, sometimes it does take something significant to happen. And clearly, to date, we have not seen that kind of energy. And by the way, there's a, there's a, budget, there's a significant budget backdrop to that that makes it very difficult to just throw money at it. 
We've, uh, I'm getting the hook signal, but I'm going to abuse my privileges as moderator to keep us open for our last question with sincere apologies to those of you who waited. Sir, you get the Thank last you so question. Much. Uh, my name is Samuel Cervantes. I'm a student here at the University of Texas, but I'm also a DACA recipient. The termination of DACA has placed my life and that of 800,000 other DACA recipients in limbo. And my question is for you, Congressman Castro. Uh, thank you so much for co-sponsoring the, uh, the DREAM Act, um, and I wanted to ask you, what are you actively doing to reach down the aisle to ensure that the DREAM Act is given time and consideration, and more importantly, uh, the ability for this piece of legislation to be voted on the floor? Oh, that's a great question, you know, and look, the only way that DACA relief is going to happen is if it's bipartisan. Uh, Democrats are in the minority party, so we can have every Democrat sign on to the, this piece of legislation, the DREAM Act. And that's not enough to pass it in the House of Representatives or in the Senate. And so we've been reaching out across the aisle to our Republican colleagues. Uh, Will has uh, you know, mentioned DACA earlier. Uh, we need a, basically a few dozen Republicans to join, join us in passing the DREAM Act. We have a certain window of time here to make it happen. Uh, this is an issue that has strong support among the American people, really across party lines. It's not even a Republican or a Democratic thing. So. Since the president's announcement, this really has been the top issue that many of us are working on as our top thing. I mean, of course, on the intelligence side, on North Korea, obviously we're working on that. Um, but in terms of getting legislation passed, this is the top priority for me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank our panelists.